Welcome back to In the Labyrinth of Death. My name is Finn. And I'm Marina. This week, we're talking about chemical disasters. We've had chemical disasters on the list for a while now, but we decided to pull it this week after the train derailment in Ohio on February 3rd. When this episode comes out, we'll be about two weeks out from that incident. So for folks who aren't aware, around 9 p.m. on February 3rd, a train derailed in a northeastern town in Ohio called East Palestine. The train derailed due to a mechanical failure on one of the rail car axles. It was carrying chemicals including vinyl chloride, which is bad enough to have made it onto the list of common toxic industrial chemicals on a DHS paper that I found linked on ready.gov. But as of this time of recording, the full list of contents of the chemicals that were on the train hasn't actually been released either by the train company or by the EPA. So the officials who were managing it ended up having to do a controlled burn of the vinyl chloride two days after the crash because they were worried that there could have been an explosion if they just let it keep sitting. Folks in East Palestine complained about headaches and nausea. The town was evacuated, but they've since been allowed back. But some residents say that it still smells strongly like pool chlorine and burning tires. Apparently some folks are still staying away, and we probably would have too, but other people don't have the option to relocate, so they kind of just have to trust that it really is safe, despite those weird lingering smells. So I don't pay attention to the news pretty much at all. So the way that this was framed to me thus far, the way you explained it, it seems that the local authorities were doing something that seemed reasonable on paper to me. So I'm not quite sure why there's such an outrage over social media about it. It seems like this is the quote-unquote right thing to do. So I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. So there's some discrepancies from what I've read over what the local government is saying versus what the EPA is saying in terms of like the amount of chemicals that were released, like the, the sheer volume, that kind of thing. Nearby towns have more stringent rules for like returning back home and cleaning surfaces and stuff than the actual town that was closest to it. So I know I read some towns that are like close by in like Pennsylvania or something were saying that they needed to like clean the surfaces in their home, anything that could have been exposed, and they haven't gotten any guidelines like that in actual East Palestine where the incident was. Some other issues that could be happening are that apparently what they're using to test the air are these like handheld devices. So they do work, but the problem is they may not have a wide enough range of what they're looking for to actually rule out other harmful things being in the air. So I read some some EPA, some former EPA like high up people saying that they really should be using something more powerful than that. And so the response has been kind of iffy and spotty in terms of has it really been fully cleared adequately? Are the tools they're using really adequate to ensure that there's nothing there given that it still smells funky? There's a bunch of dead fish and dead frogs and shit. There's a lot of like disaster movie like red flags that I think are freaking people out and it may really be safe. But if I were moving back into that town and it still smelled like that, I would definitely be worried about it. So it sounds like the actions that the local authorities did to fix the situation, they did like maybe 70 or 60% of what should have been done, just not 100%. I don't even know if we know enough to say that. They could have done 100%. The problem is there's just so many open-ended questions about this. We don't even know all the chemicals that were involved, right? So I think people just from the outside looking in are the people who are actually like living in East Palestine. I think the issue is just that they don't have answers. And I think that scares people. Before we get into it, remember, we're not experts at all of any kind. We just really don't want to die and we like researching and talking about it. So please listen to the full disclaimer at the end of the episode and don't sue us, we're just two regular people. The opening story today is the Bhopal disaster, which is still the deadliest industrial incident in human history. 
The actual disaster happened on the night of December 2nd into December 3rd in 1984, but it was a while coming. The Union Carbide India Limited, or the UCIL, was a pesticide plant in the city of Bhopal in India. It was actually majority owned by the U.S. company Union Carbide Corporation, although nearly half of it was owned by various Indian government banks and stuff like that. But who owned it isn't really important to the story that I'm telling today, other than the fact that they did try to prosecute folks both in the U.S. and in India for this, like, horrific failure. So this pesticide factory was built to produce a specific pesticide called Seven, which if you're looking up is spelled S-E-V-I-N, not like the number, and they needed this insanely toxic gas called methyl isocyanate, cyanate, I'm not good at chemistry, which I'll call MIC from now to create Seven. And they were making good money from the time the plant opened in 1969 until the 1980s. But then the demand for Seven started to drop off, but they didn't curb production as quickly as they should have. And this resulted in a surplus of that insanely toxic gas, MIC. The MIC was stored in these huge, fuck like fucking huge tanks. But the tanks were designed such that they could only be half full with MIC. And they used inert nitrogen gas to maintain the correct pressure inside the tanks. So basically, the MIC would be pumped out of it if it started to cross that 50% mark inside of the tank. One of these tanks, E610, had a total capacity of 60 tons, and so it was only allowed to contain up to 30 tons of MIC. But because something got fucked up in the nitrogen gas pressure, it actually started like accumulating beyond that, and it actually got up to 42 tons of MIC in October of 1984, and that's a few months before the night of our disaster. Other things were also breaking down or were in maintenance mode, so when they like attempted to actually fix the pressure issues in this tank on December 1st, the day before the incident, they failed and they were not able to fix it. So those 42 tons of MIC continued to sit in the tank because they couldn't fix it. So you said that starting in 69, they were making the 7 chemical for a while, but then in the 80s, so let's say about like 10 to 20 years later, the demand for this chemical dropped off. So why didn't they stop or slow down production of this? I don't know. I, maybe they were hoping it would pick back up. I'm not sure. All I know is they did end up having an excess. And then I don't know because they had like reduced revenue or what, but shit just started like breaking and going into disrepair. And so that's how something like this huge tank with too much like pressure of MIC in it was allowed to just fucking sit there for months. Well, that's not even the issue I'm talking about. It's like, why do you keep making this if there's less demand for it, regardless of shit that goes in disrepair? I honestly don't know. It's bad business. Then, due to the multitude of other pipe, valve, and safety failures at the plant, water somehow got into that E610 tank. The water created an exothermic reaction with the MIC, and pressure and temperature in the tank began to rise. At 10.30 p.m. on December 2nd, the pressure was at 14 kilopascals. 30 minutes later, at 11 p.m., it had more than quadrupled to 70 kilopascals. Workers at the plant noticed this sudden jump in pressure, but because it was so fucking huge and so fast, they assumed that it was a malfunction of the equipment that was actually, like, reading it. Now we get to 11.30, and some people working at the plant started to feel a little bit sick. So they looked for leaks at 11.45 p.m., and they found one, but they decided to fix it after their tea break, which was from 12.15 to 12.40 a.m. It's weird to me how there's like a communally agreed upon bad thing happening where people are getting sick and there's like a nonchalant response to, oh, we'll fix it literally like an hour later. It doesn't really make sense to me. So there had been previous leaks at this factory in the past, 
I think maybe one person died, but at least in one instance, I think like 25 people got sick. So the fact that this MIC was leaking was not a novel thing to them. And so people feeling a little bit sick and then finding a small leak in the tank, I think was not enough cause for alarm to disrupt their break because it was probably a thing that happened frequently as these things were, you know, wear and tearing and starting to break down. This would end up being a fatal mistake though. When they were done with their tea break, so again at 12.40 a.m., the temperature and the pressure in tank E610 had jumped rapidly over the last five minutes, up to 280 kilopascals. So again, it's quadrupled again in this past hour. So shit's really bad at this point. An emergency release valve basically explodes, breaking the top concrete slab on the tank, and there were several safety features that should have prevented this from leaking into the atmosphere of the MIC, but all of them failed. So some of those things were the tank should have been cooled to help like keep the pressure down, but that safety feature was dropped six months earlier. The flare tower that should have burned the MIC gas as it escaped was one, partially under maintenance, and two, it wasn't even the right size. And three, the vent gas scrubber, sorry, the vent gas scrubber, it's so hard to say, basically what was supposed to clean the gas as it like went out was in standby mode, and it also didn't have enough caustic soda or power to even have made a difference, even if it wasn't in standby mode. So, having failed every possible safety gate, MIC is now leaking out of tank E610 into the atmosphere. Over the next hour, 30 tons of MIC would leak out of the tank and drift towards the sleeping town of Bhopal. At 12.50 a.m., the plant workers did pull the alarm. This caused the internal factory alarm to go off, but also an external alarm meant to warn folks in Bhopal of any factory incidents. Now, unfortunately, this external alarm was set up so as not to bother people for insignificant leaks, which again, were happening like apparently all the time. So the default behavior for the alarm was to sound once and that's all, unless the factory pushed the alarm further. And of course, they didn't push the alarm further. So the town's alarm rang only once, but the factory workers all escaped upwind because the internal alarm was working. So at this point, all the people that are in the immediate vicinity, it sounds like they've escaped more or less unscathed, but downwind where people are unaware of this, they're about to get fucked up. Is that right? Yeah. So basically everybody in the factory gets out. I'm not sure if people had injuries or not. Um, it was a relatively small amount of people relative to like the whole mass of this incident. So as it goes downwind, that's where like the actual town is where people live in Bhopal. So that's unfortunately the wind is blowing it towards the inhabited town in the middle of the fucking night. As the white cloud of MIC descended on Bhopal, it now gets really bad for everybody in town. People start experiencing extreme coughing, severe eye irritation, suffocation, burning lungs, stomach pain, vomiting. So everybody tries to rush to the hospital, but a bunch of people die on the way they're not able to make it. And it's especially bad for small kids who are walking because it actually is a pretty low-lying gas. And then shitty communication with the actual factory, like from the hospital to the factory and the police to the factory, severely delayed treatment for folks who actually made it to the hospital. And that's because the hospital staff were originally told by the factory that it was ammonia, and then that it was phosphine. And they were finally told that it was MIC, but they didn't actually know what that was or what they could do to actually help people after they were exposed to it. So when the last of the MIC leaked out of the tank, which was now around 2 a.m., the actual legit town alarm started going off, the like, like the really bad one. But obviously at that point, the damage had already been done and the people who were going to die, a lot of them had already died. So in total, that night, 2,259 people died, most of them of pulmonary edema, choking, or circulatory collapse. 
Many people who survived were blinded, and many were later diagnosed with cancer as well. After that night, a total of at least 3,787 people were killed due to the factory issues, but according to some accounts, it could actually be up to a total of 16,000 people that died due to this MIC leak, depending on where you look. I won't get into it, but there were lawsuits, settlements, criminal charges, basically everything you'd expect with a fuck-up this big. But all of that doesn't make up for the lives lost, the suffering of the people who survived, or the ongoing birth defects and physical and developmental disorders that continue to affect children in Bhopal. So do you know how MIC actually like attacks the human body? Based on the symptoms that you described, it sounds a lot like mustard gas. I don't know. I should have looked it up, but I mean, I'm sure the burning, the nausea, the eye irritation, it's probably caustic. I'm not sure. I should, we should probably look it up. I don't know. So apparently, I'm not the only person who doesn't know the mechanism of action for how the MIC actually kills you. There have been some theories recently, but I was not able to find any actual clear answers as to how it impacts the human body. I did find one study from 1992 saying that it looks like once you inhale the MIC, it's able to basically cross from your lungs into different parts of your body. So that's kind of like the entryway into how it created these like multi-systemic issues for people. So that's how it gets into your lungs and into your body. And then obviously the blinding, it's just your eyes are fucking open and it's in the air. We normally cover stuff like background info and stats, but with this one, there's really not that much point for like a chemical incident or a chemical disaster. And that's because it's basically random. So I think for the purposes of this episode, everybody should assume that it's possible that they could be at risk one day. Like it just fucking happened in Ohio with the train derailment. So even if it's a very, very, very small risk, you know, just think about it going forward that basically anywhere that you could be in the world, some weird freak accident could happen and you could be exposed. So what can you do to actually prepare? Like most disasters, there's stuff you can buy and set aside in case you ever need it. For chemical disasters, that list should include duct tape, scissors, and plastic sheeting, which can be used to seal off doorways, windows, and vents. I've seen some places recommend pre-cutting the plastic sheet to fit your windows and doors. So the idea being that you could just like pull them out of like your like box and then immediately like duct tape them up. Keep in mind that you don't necessarily need enough for all of your doors and windows. You really just need enough for wherever you'd want to hole up if you had to shelter in place somewhere. We'll talk more about sheltering in place in just a little bit. So now you also want masks and ideally something like an N95. I personally got a little spooked by the Ohio derailment that just happened since, like many people, we live within hearing distance of the train tracks when it's doing, like, the woot-woot thing as it goes through town. So I ordered some extra N95s for Finn and me and also some in kid sizes for our daughter. I've also been thinking about getting the dogs masks. That is actually this brand that came out in 2020 with, like, basically N95s for dogs. They're primarily meant for stuff like wildfires, but they're rated for everything from volcanic ash to chemical toxins. I actually ordered four total today since we have two dogs, so we can have a set in the car and a set in the house. I'm also tossing some of the adult and kid-sized N95s in the car as well, just in case there's ever something urgent we have to pile into the car without running around looking for supplies. If you don't have N95s, a dust mask may be sufficient, and if you don't have that and you're in the middle of an emergency, I've seen recommended that you can actually get a towel wet and use that over your mouth to breathe through. I feel like the N95 mask is dubiously useful because it's not like an airtight or I should say skin tight seal on your face. You're still going to breathe in whatever shit's going to fuck you up anyways. No, that's not how an N95 works. N95 is actually a tight seal. You're thinking like a surgical mask. Yeah. 
N95s are not surgical masks. Oh. N95s are the ones that are going to like cup on your face and they're going to leave a mark on your face. They're so tight. So you will not get stuff filtering in through it the way you would through like the mask that like your hygienist is going to wear. So all throughout COVID, the normal masks that people have been wearing, those are not N95 masks? No. The N95 masks that you get, like if it's a real N95, it's going to have like a little like hard section in the middle and you kind of fan it out. And it's got like metal around like your nose and around your face like this. So we've never used an N95 mask. I have. You have not. When I was still going into the office, I used N95s. Also, and I don't see this on a ton of lists, but I feel like I'd also want eye goggles. It can't hurt and maybe it could help. So we have goggles both for humans and we also have rec specs for our dogs, which are like dog eye goggles that also block UV. Obviously, if you're sheltering in place, you're also going to need stuff like food and water. So remember, you need one water, one water, one gallon of water per person per day. And you also need water for pets as well. Our dogs are fairly small and they could probably share a quart of water for one day. Make sure you also have non-perishables of food at home, both for you and your pets. And if it's in cans, make sure you have a manual can opener. Also keep prescription meds and regular over-the-counter meds for basic needs. I know I've talked about this before, at least on one other episode, but I'll say it again. Make sure you have meds for both adults, kids, and any pets that you may have. But that's all just basic stuff that you should have on hand for any emergency scenario. So if you don't have like food, water, and basic meds, make sure you work on getting it. Even if it takes a while to accumulate it, just get started. It's better safe than sorry. Lastly, as a general safety rule, and I don't do this all the time even though I should, try not to let your gas tank drop below halfway. You don't want to be told you have to evacuate somewhere and run out of gas before you can get safely far enough away. But everything that you just said is assuming that you want to shelter in place and stay there for, let's say, more than a couple of days at a time. But that's not always the best thing you want to do, right? I feel like in a lot of cases, you want to get the fuck out of there. So it depends. And I'll talk more about this later, but you really need to base it on the situation and what the authorities are telling you because there is no, each one of these is like a separate fuck up and calamity of some kind, right? It could be any fucking chemical of any kind. So in some cases, you need to evacuate. And in some cases, you need to shelter in place. And I'll talk about this in just a second, like I said, but basically, you as an individual saying, oh, there's a train car that's derailed. You don't know what the fuck was on that. But if the authorities are telling you to evacuate, that means that based on that particular fucked up situation, that's what you should do. But for others, staying in place while maybe it gets burned off or something like that, staying in place might be the right thing to do. So you just have to listen and just understand what the situation is and like where the wind's blowing and all that shit. But is it ever the case that getting the fuck out is actually the worst option? It's possible that if you're able to hole up inside somewhere and if it's outside and it's going to go into your house, maybe the wind's going to blow it away and you could just walk right into it, right? Like it, it could be all like a timing thing also. All right. So whether or not you've actually prepared for it, let's say that you're unlucky enough to be near an actual chemical incident. What should you do? If it's an incident happening inside of a building that you're in, you want to get out ASAP without going through the affected area. This is a theme that we're going to see in basically all these situations where if you are told to evacuate, basically under no circumstances should you go through the affected area. You need to find a way around it. So if you can't get out of whatever that building is, at that point you'd want to shelter in place rather than walk through it. And I'll cover sheltering in place more in detail shortly. Now, if you're outdoors and the incident occurred outdoors, you want to move upwind 
and get indoors as soon as possible. If you're in a car, you want to turn off the air with your heater, your AC is running, whatever you've got, then block off all the vents and either evacuate and get the fuck out or get to a shelter just based on your situation. Remember, your car is not a safe place to shelter in this kind of like a chemical situation because it's not as airtight as you may think it is. I'm assuming that for all of these chemical incidents that we are hypothetically talking about, that they are somehow airborne, right? Because otherwise, if it's not airborne, we wouldn't probably need to follow half of these rules. Yeah, again, that goes back to like, if it's some kind of a spill on the ground, are they going to have to burn it off or can they do something else to stabilize it? So again, that's just listening to people who actually know what they're talking about in the situation. And if it is something that's just on the ground and it's contained, then maybe you have to worry about it getting into the groundwater or maybe it's fine. You just have to listen to whatever their advice is. If you're already inside though, and again, you're inside, it's happening outside, you really, 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 like I said, need to listen to officials on whatever the fuck is happening. The reason for this is that you're going to be presented with two paths. You either need to shelter in place or you need to evacuate. And you don't know which you should do unless you listen to instructions because the correct path depends on whatever the fuck is causing the incident and where it is relative to where you are. If you are told to evacuate, don't wait. Get your kids and your pets in the car and just get the fuck out. If you've prepared and you already have stuff like your important documents and a ready-to-go place, go ahead and grab those if you have time. But whatever you do, don't waste time looking for shit if you haven't already prepared to go. Just get the fuck out with your kids and pets. You'll need to know where the incident occurred so you don't drive through it. And if it's in the air, you'll need to know where it's gone so you can get out safely without driving through the affected area. Apparently, if you're literally trapped, imagine like you're like in the middle of a donut and the affected area is all around you and you can't get out without going through it, you may need to shelter in place, at least according to what I read on ready.gov. For me personally, though, that's a little bit of a judgment call. If we were going to be trapped or we could plug up the car vents and pass through it quickly and hope for the best, maybe we would. But some chemical leaks can cause you to just pass the fuck out quickly, so it all just depends on the circumstances. And for the record, you should 100% listen to the experts and not to me. And I remember we watched this case where it was like a truck that was overturned and there were policemen that were going to go help the truck or firemen and they kept going kind of one by one and passing out. Do you remember that case? Yeah, I do remember what you're talking about. It was in a YouTube video, but I don't know if it was like an episode of a mega disaster or like something that was just a montage, but it was a case where there was like an overturned cylindrical truck of some kind, like the one that you would associate carrying like gas. But it was where the authorities came and started to look into it one by one, and they all started to sequentially like pass out. And it and was fast. It was it, like they walked there and they were just like fucking down. It was down. definitely fast, which was weird because there was actually footage of it. If we find it, we're going to link it in our notes for the episode. If you've been told to shelter in place, make sure you've brought all your kids and pets inside. You're going to want to make sure you close all external windows and all doors that are both indoor and outdoor. If you can close your inside vents as well, do that as well. We have them like on the floor and there's like a little dial you can slide to close the vents. So if it's quick and you can do it, go ahead and do it. Also, you want to turn off your AC or furnace. And I know a lot of times there's like a separate fan setting. So make sure you turn that off as well. You basically want to make it so that you're not like purposefully with your AC unit sucking in any toxic fumes into your home from the outside. 
So once you've closed off everything as much as you can on the outside, you want to go into an internal room and thoroughly block it off. And like thoroughly, thoroughly. You're going to want to cover all vents and gaps, like the gaps around the door, all the way around. This is the place you'll want to use your plastic sheeting and duct tape if you have it. If you don't, you can put a wet towel underneath the door or even wax paper, or honestly, you could probably just straight up duct tape like the whole thing. Basically, you just want to use whatever you have at your disposal to make yourself a little like air bubble inside of your home. And then you wait and you continue listening to the experts because depending on how situations change, you may need to switch to an evacuation just depending on circumstances. If you or somebody else has actually been exposed to the chemical, like when you're trying to get from your car back into your house or something, you'll need to follow official instructions that they're provided. But generally speaking, you're going to want to decontaminate yourself as quickly as possible. So that means take off your clothes. If you have contacts or glasses, take those off. And you want to clean yourself with soap and water. And before that, put all of the contaminated items in a trash bag and fucking tie it up. So the same goes for pets that have been exposed. You want to get them shampooed ASAP indoors. Don't worry about clogging up the shower drain. And interestingly, the CDC has some pretty detailed instructions for decontaminating your pets. I'm going to add it to our list of sources on our website, so check it out. But just a few things of note from it. One is make sure you're wearing a mask and gloves before washing your pet. When we talked about the rabies episode, that was our fuck up for washing our dogs after the skunk encounter. If you don't have a mask and gloves, you can also use plastic bags on your hand and just like cloth over your mouth. But whatever you do, don't like wipe or rub your pet's fur in a way when you're trying to clean them. That's going to drive the chemicals from the top of their fur towards their skin, which I didn't think about, but that makes a lot of sense. So they said before you actually shampoo them, you want to blot them with a damp cloth or like a wet paper towel or something. And then after you've shampooed them and rinsed them, you want to spend 10 to 15 minutes flushing their eyes after shampooing them if their eyes are irritated. I can't imagine our dogs tolerating that where you just like pour water into their eyes for that long, but that will help flush any of that stuff out. So like we with the humans, you want to make sure you toss everything, including towels used to dry them off with, into a trash bag afterwards, and again, tie it up and don't reopen it. And if you were exposed when you were washing your pet, you now need to decontaminate yourself with the chemical. Now back to humans and decontamination. If you need to wear your glasses again, like that's your primary pair of glasses, apparently you should decontaminate them with household bleach first and then wash them with soap and water. And one note here, again, I am extraordinarily bad at chemistry, so I am not 100% sure what the point of the bleach is. My understanding is that bleach was for killing like living things and viruses. I have honestly no idea what bleach is going to do against like a chemical. Also, like with decontaminating your pets, make sure you're washing your own eyes with water. If they could have been exposed, you could prevent like permanent damage being done to your eyes or at least like temporary discomfort. The CDC website also makes a point to say that if you've been exposed to a chemical in a situation like this, like literally exposed and it could be like physically on you, don't worry about trying to figure out what it is because time's ticking. You just want to get the fuck off of you ideally in 10 minutes or less. And if you can't get it off of you in those 10 minutes, they want you to wipe off like as much of it as possible and just with whatever you have in the circumstances to just do your best to get it off of your skin basically. Finally, once you or your dog or whoever has been exposed is clean from the chemicals, you want to call your local poison control center, emergency services, or go to a hospital if it's safe to do so. And for pets, there are separate animal poison control centers that you can call, and you should consider where emergency vets are outside the affected area if it's safe to go. 
Make sure you're not leaving a shelter in place if you can't do so safely. That being said, I'm not in your shoes, and if someone's literally dying and you have to go, then you kind of have to make a judgment call. And honestly, that's been one of my issues with thinking through scenarios like this. Like, I always like to think through what would I do in this scenario, so I kind of like have a plan. But with something like a chemical disaster, there's just so many variables and possibilities of what could possibly go wrong that the official guidelines can seem pretty rigid. I know this doesn't specifically help people who have glasses because it's just going to get in the way. But does the CDC or any other legal governing body recommend that you have some sort of like goggles to store and use in this kind of situation? It's a stretch, I know, because some people might only use them to go to the pool or the beach and it's stuck in the fucking attic or basement somewhere. But is there like some sort of guideline for that? So I didn't check the CDC's list of preparedness items. I did check ready.gov and I did not see goggles on there. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I haven't seen them on a lot of lists. I don't know if that's just because maybe you can't get an airtight seal. I, I'm not sure why I don't see that a lot. If it's there and I missed it, it's possible, but I am like 99.99% sure that I have not seen it on an official list anywhere. All right, so we're kind of wrapping stuff up. So we like to talk about media and in terms of like representation of disasters and like what you've seen in Hollywood and what's real. And there's one I want to bring up, which is weird in particular for the Ohio, the East Palestine, like train derailment, and that's White Noise. And it's this weird comedy movie that just came out recently on Netflix. It's a fine movie. It's not really of note. It's, it's not that interesting, except that it's about a train accident leading to a chemical spill that caught fire and forced a whole town to evacuate. And weirdly, it was filmed in Ohio, and some people from East Palestine who had to evacuate actually acted as extras in the movie. So apparently it was really difficult for them now to watch the movie that they were extras in because they had to live through the premise of the movie in real life shortly after being extras in basically that movie. As a movie, it's only okay. Like I said, I made it maybe three quarters of the way through before I just started skipping ahead to kind of get the gist because I knew we were going to talk about it here. The first part with the actual disaster was fun and funny in some parts, but then I didn't feel like sitting through like this absurd existential dread comedy for the rest of the movie. So if you're in the mood for something like that, then maybe you'll like it, but it just wasn't my cup of tea this morning. Also, as a side note, this movie, White Noise, is a completely different movie from the 2005 White Noise horror movie starring Michael Keaton about hearing voices from the other side and EVPs. That White Noise is a truly terrible movie in the best way. I think it got like a 7% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I have really fond memories of watching it as a kid. So if you also have fond memories of watching it back in like 2005 when it came out, it's probably not a good idea to rewatch it since it's not going to hold up with that 7% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm still bummed like years later after rewatching Wolf Creek again as an adult. On the nonfiction side, there's also Seconds to Disaster, which is a show we've talked about before. I think it's National Geographic and it's one of our favorites. It basically like walks you through like the timeline of engineering failures and how these like catastrophic things happen. And there's actually an episode about the Bhopal disaster, which we haven't seen for probably a few years. But if you can find that show, which is kind of hard to find sometimes, this episode and all the rest of them are seriously fantastic and it's worth a watch. I highly recommend looking for this specific episode on YouTube if it's still up there because 
it really explains in detail the entire structure of the chemical factory itself. For example, there's the whole venting system. There's a whole burning of excess gas that didn't work the way it's supposed to. So if you want to see how the actual moving parts that were supposed to have prevented this from happening, but they were so fucked up that it didn't do anything that was supposed to, you should check it out because we can't do it justice just through audio here. You really should see it like visually represented. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Like even how like the water got into the tank, like they have all of those details. So it, it, I think we watched it on YouTube because we couldn't find it anywhere else. But if it's out there on like a legit streaming service that we could sit there and watch all of the episodes, it, we watched it in like 640p. It was awful. It was like super difficult to actually see it. So if there's a legit version of it out there, please let us know if you have seen it somewhere because we definitely want to like do another watch through sometime. All right, and that's it for now. Don't forget that we have a website, inthelabyrinthofdeath.com. We also have stickers there, so if you go to inthelabyrinthofdeath.com slash stickers, you can get them there or just click the button that says stickers. You can also reach us on Instagram at inthelabyrinthofdeath. So follow us wherever you listen. Leave us a review if you get a chance. We actually look and read them, and it's very exciting when we get one, so we'd really appreciate it. Tune in next week for yet another episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime, send us your near misses with death to in the labyrinth of death at gmail.com. We'll see y'all next week. This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, and is for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you have heard is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with actual professionals.